I'm James Stewart, and you're listening to Timeline from Vermont Public Classical. I was a young undergrad student at conservatory, taking a class with a name like Introduction to 20th Century Music. I can't remember the exact title. For this class, I was required to purchase a book of scores and a CD of recordings featuring pieces by 20th century composers, starting with Ravel and Debussy and ending with Monk, Cage, and Crum. Somewhere in the back of the book was a piece that stood out to me. It was called Country Dance from Peter Maxwell Davies' Eight Songs for a Mad King. The score was handwritten, the staves disconnected and everywhere on the page. There were instructions like smoochy, using cupped hands as a megaphone, and violin breaks apart. When I listened to Country Dance, I was unprepared for what I heard. Yes, the music was playful and at times unsettling, but the vocal performance was beyond description. He was a performer that laid everything out there for the audience, almost destroying their voice for the sake of making you laugh, cringe, or jump in your seat. That was my first introduction to Julius Eastman. Like many music students, I barely heard of Eastman when I was in school. Beyond the recording of eight songs, all I knew was that Eastman wrestled with addiction, had angry run-ins with other musicians, composers, and the police, and died penniless and homeless. Julius Eastman's life was told to me as a cautionary tale, but his music tells a much richer story, and some folks in the classical world are just starting to really hear Eastman for the first time. In the past couple of decades, thanks to new books and releases of archived recordings, there's been a revival of interest in Julius Eastman. Eastman was one of the first composers that really we felt like somehow there was some kind of kinship. I think I think he was a poet. I think he was um, a philosopher. He was very gentle. He had this wonderful, deep voice. He was easy to talk to. In Eastman's case, he was always being consistently provocative in a very strategic way. He just really liked to smash everything all the time. He manufactured his own destiny, I guess you could say. We'll get to know each of those voices in a moment. Today on Timeline, we'll be diving into the music, life, and legacy of Julius Eastman. We'll look at his development as a musician and an artist. We'll talk about his reputation and his struggles with being an openly gay black man in the late 70s and early 80s. We'll discuss the triumph and tragedy, and also discuss the place that Eastman's music has or should have in the canon. Of course, that means talking about the very concept of the classical canon itself and who gets to be in it. We'll talk with an author of a recent article about Eastman's life. We'll meet the individual who's responsible for making Julius Eastman's music available to a new generation. We'll talk with other composers of color who share if their experiences align with Eastman's and speak with a new music ensemble that is recording a seven-volume anthology of Julius Eastman's music in a modern context. So let's start with where this whole project began. Throughout my life, I've been an artist and an arts administrator. That's John Kalaki, the executive director of the Flynn Center for eight years. These days, he's a writer. John recently published an article for the Arts Views and wrote Timeline to ask if I would like to interview him about it. The piece was titled Arts Appreciation Long Overdue, Homage to Julius Eastman, Fierce Black Queen Iconoclast. With a title like that, I had to say yes. 
I wanted to write this article because I really wanted to talk about the glory of Julius Eastman, not the tragedy of Julius Eastman. He was quite a figure. 1976, he was interviewed in the Buffalo Times, and he said his aspiration was to be what I am to the fullest, black to the fullest, a musician to the fullest, and a homosexual to the fullest. One of the benefits of talking with someone like John Kalaki is that we get to hear about Julius Eastman from a person with first-hand knowledge and not just from a Wikipedia biography. John and Julius's paths cross quite often. I would see Julius a lot in New York in the 70s. I would see him at performances. Uh, I lived across the street of Meredith Monk at the time, and he was working with Meredith in a piece called Dolman Music. So I knew the placid side of Julius Eastman. And then he was, I would see him at gay clubs, and he was this outrageous, outsized um, persona at the clubs. He had a lot of issues going on uh, in his life. He struggled um, economically to make a living. He struggled with substance use disorders. Uh, somewhere in the mid 80s, uh, he was evicted from his apartment for a non-payment of rent. And the, the tragedy there was they took all of his scores, and he was a very prolific composer, all of his notes, and threw them out on the curb and Julius said, oh, I don't need them anymore, and walked away, and sadly he died in 1990, homeless, and completely forgotten. And now, decades later, there's been this resurgent interest in him, and I'm so thrilled about that. In 2005, a composer friend of Eastman's, Mary Jane Leach, released a set of archive recordings of Julius Eastman's music titled Unjust Malaise. And in 2015, Leach wrote a book called Gay Gorilla, the life and music of Julius Eastman. Gay Gorilla is the title of one of Julius's more notorious pieces. Who was this guy? And there weren't any scores left, but people had played this music. So they started reconstructing some of the scores from archival tapes of the music. I just sort of accidentally became a musicologist by collecting all of this work of Julius Eastman's. And that's the voice of Mary Jane Leach, author, performer, composer, and also a native Vermonter. I was uh, getting ready to teach a course at CalArts. The school had a lot of what I call like gadget and computer electronic music composers. And so they said, well, we want you to do a course on real instruments. So I thought, well, I've been always fascinated with multiples of the same instrument, you know, like nine oboes, and in Joyce's case, it was 10 cellos. And I really wanted to have that, use that piece in my class. The piece that Mary Jane is referring to is Julius Eastman's The Holy Presence of Joan of Arc for voice and ten cellos. It made quite an impression when it premiered in 1981 at The Kitchen, one of New York City's oldest nonprofit venues. And the one thing I never did find was the score, unfortunately. His ex-lover has made a point to tell us or tell people that Julius used to use the pages of his score for that cello piece to line the cat box. 
So with the score missing, Mary Jane turned to the performers. She tracked down the cellists who had played that piece years ago and turned out that one of them still had a tape of the performance. Brian Rulon, who was another composer, made me a, a, a copy. And because it was on cassettes, it was done in real time. So as he's dubbing the cassette, he started telling me about how Julius's music had disappeared. And I sort of thought it was really sad, but I didn't think a lot about it. But as I was trying to find more of his music, I realized that his music really had indeed disappeared. But Mary Jane wasn't going to let that happen. In fact, she decided to go deeper into unearthing Julius's life and background. It wasn't an easy job calling through all those old recordings. There were some that had been dubbed to cassette, and the rest of them were on reel-to-reel. And at that time, the reel-to-reel tapes were defective. The um, plastic and the emulsion had become separated. So if you tried to play it on a tape machine, the emulsion would come off, and then you just have a piece of plastic. So the thing is, you have to bake them at like 200 degrees, and it's like a one-time solution. So you, you bake them, and then you digitize them, and then bye-bye tape. I was so traumatized by that whole process because it just seems like it's just guaranteed to get screwed up. And I had a dream that I found these bags of Julius's dirty clothes. <laughs> and I dreamed that I washed them, and then I put them in the cassette deck, and they played perfectly. <laughs> Surprisingly, between found archival tapes at the University of Buffalo and Northwestern University, Mary Jane was able to pull together an impressive collection of Julius's music. She then set out to share this collection with the world. I uh, produced a three-CD set called Unjust Malaise, which is an anagram of Julius's name. And I had uh, produced that for New World, and I thought that that would be it. But it turned out that it wasn't because people were interested in it. And at that point, people go, oh, yeah, you know, I knew Julius. And did you ever check out this or check out that? Unjust Malaise was widely influential in just the beginning of a revival of interest in Eastman's music. Here again is author John Kalaki. What's interesting now is all of the musicians who are improvisers, jazz artists, classically trained, are diving into this music and kind of realizing it in their own very way, because that's what Julius allowed. The Wild Up group in Los Angeles has committed to a seven-part anthology of his music. And last year they did the first part, and it was an incredible symphony called Feminine. And uh, the New York Times talked about it as a masterpiece. Eastman was one of the first composers that really we felt like somehow there was some kind of kinship. This is Christopher Roundtree, the artistic director and conductor of the new music group Wild Up. As an ensemble, Wild Up plays just about everything from 20th century music, ancient works, premieres, their work rides the line between theater and performance art, pop and classical. Wild Up is currently working on a seven-volume anthology dedicated to the music of Julius Eastman. Their Eastman recordings have been nominated for multiple Grammy Awards. I think Eastman wasn't coming to any public awareness until 15 years after his death uh, with the release of Unjust Malaise on New World Records. 
And that's the pianist and keyboardist for Wild Up, Richard Valetudo. At that time, already you could get your hands on some PDFs of the scores, but that was mainly because of the work Mary Jane Leach had done. Some of the things that Eastman seemed to be doing were uh, very much in line with with what the group ethos had become somewhere between classical art, jazz, pop worlds, kind of a very a very focused and uh, sort of uncompromising aesthetic concerns, while at the same time, like clearly encouraging a lot of uh, improvisation and creativity and, and kind of just sheer uh, wildness and abandon. One of the things that we realized um, after doing Feminine or was that we, we wanted to do iterative performances. So on one record, having multiple performances of the same piece. They did two pieces twice. And, and one was called Touch Him When. And the one track of it has magnificent classic minimalism with the strings and going on. They do it a second time and it's guitars and it's a heavy metal version of the same piece. Um, so we, we have you know multiple versions of Touch Him When already from our guitarist Gigi. Um, we're planning multiple versions of Gay Gorilla as well. Both Volume 1 and Volume 2 of Wild Up's seven-part anthology of Eastman's music are available on New Amsterdam Records. That these classically trained artists are trying to work on this and bring this work back. We're all the richer for it. That's just a taste of what ensembles are doing with Eastman's music today. Now let's go back a little bit and talk with someone who heard these works when they were first written and performed. You know, I knew Julius, um, I first heard him when I was a, an undergrad in 1974. That's the voice of composer and author Kyle Gann. For 19 years, Kyle was the new music critic for The Village Voice in New York City from 1986 to 2005. The Village Voice was the only publication in the country that had a dedicated uh, critic for just new and experimental music. And I went to a lot of weird concerts. However, by the time Kyle started at The Voice, Eastman was already invisible. I don't think he had he had uh, performed in, since about 82 or 83, and I joined The Voice in 86. And so he had kind of disappeared. And then in 1989 or 90, just before he died, I saw him in line for tickets at Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I was really happy to see him, and I was hoping maybe he'd perform again and I'd get to write about him. He died soon after that. No one knew about it. I heard a rumor, and eight months after he died, wrote an obituary about him, which is the first chance I'd, I'd had to write about him with the voice. So Julius Eastman dies, and the tragedy here is that no one noticed for months. Julius was a really big deal in the downtown New York scene, and as were a lot of other composers, all of those composers deserve to be revived. Talking with people who knew Julius, I keep hearing the same stories from different individuals about interactions that Julius had with universities and other composers. But for a lot of it, Kyle was there, in person. I've thought a lot about him over the years and, and his his energy comes back into, into my music occasionally. And he did have amazing charisma. Talk to me about his charisma. What, what made that amazing? 
It was partly his voice, which was very deep, and his manner, which was slow and careful. One can play this piece therefore with just four people. And he would be very direct. If he was attracted to you, he'd say that. He just, he had a real centeredness to him. And he was such an unusual character. He looked, he, he seemed athletic, thin and wiry. You just never met anybody else quite like him. What is bringing about this kind of revival of interest in the music and life of Julius Eastman? Julius, Julius's story really hit people. They really identify with it. He has relevance in a lot of worlds that don't really connect with the classical music world. There's a really good interview that David Garland did with him while Julius was homeless. And he admits, oh yeah, I was living in, living in Tompkins Square Park or something. He acts like it's the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> in our conversation together, Kyle mentioned a specific rhythm that he borrowed from Eastman's music. Gay Gorilla, he has this driving beat, dum ba ba bum ba ba bum ba ba bum And I have included that in two or three pieces as kind of an homage to Julius. It was an aspect of minimalism that you could pick up without being so associated with Glass and Reich, I guess. Glass and Reich might as well have patented their devices, but uh, Julius had these wonderful ideas that you could, we could, you could go and develop. Uh, almost organic, you would say, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Eastman called his own compositional style organic music. We'll unpack what that term means in a moment. Early in his career, Eastman had made a name for himself as a performer of other people's music. He was invited to join the Creative Associates, an avant-garde classical music program at SUNY Buffalo's Center for the Creative and Performing Arts. He had a financial stipend with very few strings attached and began creating his own works. Here again is Mary Jane Leach. As we mentioned earlier, she brought Eastman's work to a new generation and really followed the changes in his music. He started taking more char charge of his, his pieces. He just was much more specific about what he wanted. Eastman caught the attention of other composers as well, like Kyle Gann, who says that Eastman's works were pretty radical for the times. You know, there was a tremendous, tremendous wall between pop and classical music at that time. You could not cross that line. Julius brought a pop sensibility into minimalism earlier than anybody else would have dared do it. Author John Kalaki says Eastman's music especially stood out because it was 1976. It was a different musical era then. And if you think about the kind of new music scene in New York back then, it was Philip Glass, wonderful, Steve Reich, but their minimalism was kind of a cool, detached, mathematically precise building with their into their crescendos and everything had kind of a balance to it. So Julius and his pieces at that same time in the 70s, he had these four grand pianos pounding, pounding at each other in, in the pieces or 10 cellos. And it wasn't minimalism. I mean, he, it was at that beginning time that that was happening, but he had a fire in it that was quite different. What made Eastman's music different from his contemporaries? Well, let's start with how Eastman characterized his own work. He used the term organic music to describe his compositional technique. What I call make organic music. That is to say, the third part of any part 
of the third measure, or the third section, the third part, has to contain all of the information of the first two parts and then go on from there. You know, minimalism was, was about slow change. Julius's organic idea was that you would, you would play some material, then you would play some more material with it that would contain the old material, and then you would play, go on and play something that contained that material. It is very organic because when you start dealing with a harmonic series or things like that, there's something very basic that I think people respond to. Uh, it's almost visceral in a, in a way. In some of his music, which was very strange, it was that he would start out very, very tonal, and by 20 minutes into the piece, you'd be, plug, be, be playing all 12 pitches at once, or you'd be playing 12 different keys at the same time. Despite the pop sensibility, he wrote a lot of chaos, and he would let the chaos evolve gradually out of the, out of the opening, very simple material. This concept of organic music brings to mind the image of a fractal, repeated patterns that evolve and shift with infinite complexity defined by simple rules. That's why so many ensembles and bands are being drawn to Eastman's music. There's always something new to discover. The way that different groups are really taking the works and making them individual. That's Richard Valetudo from the new music ensemble, Wild Up. Uh, I think one of the first examples of that was the Horse Lords recording of Stay On It, or the jazz quartet. Totally. Um, which it it is it, you in my opinion like they play the work in a way that not a lot of arrangements will necessarily play the capital W work. It's so interesting because you hear infusion of the sounds and building on the sounds into words, but you also hear this inflection and this this beat that goes into it, and then it it, it becomes very propulsive you know, moving forward and very joyful, just very joyful. There's life and joy in so much of Julius's music. However, some of his titles say something else entirely. He wrote these pieces that I kind of call proto-minimals because they were very different than what Glass and, and you know, those his contemporaries were doing at the time. But he also decided to name these things in very provocative titles. In Eastman's case, he was always being consistently provocative in a very strategic way. There are these various arcs where there's like groups of pieces that are all kind of within a certain poetic trope. And there was that batch of pieces for a few years where things were like highly, highly um, charged with, um, with racial and, and sexual identification markers. I'll jump in here to say that I'm uncomfortable even reading some of the titles Julius Eastman chose for his pieces. And that's the point. Eastman wasn't interested in comfort, which is evident in his use of the N-word and homophobic slurs. It sometimes caused controversy, like when he performed at Northwestern University in Illinois in 1981. Kyle Gann was there. I still had a recording of Julius's concert. He had played three of his multiple, multiple piano pieces, two of them, two of which used the N-word in the title, and there was naturally some controversy about it. The uh, black fraternity was outraged. But even then, the stories he told in his music weren't all ugly. Here's Mary Jane Leach again. There's almost an inverse ratio of sort of provocative and beautiful. Earlier on, he had kind of 
beautiful titles, but kind of provocative music. And then as he, as he progressed, he, he wrote beautiful music with provocative titles. The title and the music work in tandem to project a singular artistic vision. The titles were censored because of some protests from student groups and, and the administration ended up censoring his posters. And um, the compromise that they came to was that he would then speak about them. And so he came out and gave a little speech beforehand explaining his benign reasons for, for using the word. Uh, I want to say a few words uh, about the music. There was, a, there was a little problem with the titles of the piece. Uh, there, were, there were some students and uh, one faculty member uh, who felt that the titles were somehow derogatory in some manner. So here's Julius Eastman, this amazingly talented composer and performer who was boldly challenging classical and academic systems. He was forcing conversations of complex issues simply with the titles he chose. It seems that Eastman was more than just a musician. I think, I think he was a poet. I think he was um, a philosopher. This is composer and artist activist Daniel Bernard Romain, or DBR, who has worked with the music of Julius Eastman for years. And I think he had a real aspiration, frustration and aspiration. And, and I think the thing that we share in common is that our titles suggest um, a perspective, an opinion, a better world, um, a landscape. All titles have certain information, all titles. Uh, they, re they betray and reveal a certain privilege or um, posture. So even Sonata Number 1, you're saying something. All arts are political, all of them, all of the arts. Are, you know, Swan Lake, political, <laughs> you know, NC, political. I think what Julius um, Eastman has done is that it's, it's, I see these as challenge, that the titles challenge us, provide and provoke us, I would say, to a deeper understanding, um, a kind of intimacy. Hopefully the piece delivers, you know. <laughs> and that's the challenge, to sit with the music and the titles and hold the tension of what Eastman is saying as an individual and as an artist. Eastman's personality was larger than life, and his relationships with other composers and musicians were sometimes quite complicated. So Julius Eastman was a, was a proud gay black man, working a composer, pianist, inventor, I would say, in, in the model of a John Cage, who apparently did not like Julius Eastman. DBR's comment here about John Cage not liking Julius Eastman is something that came up in almost all the conversations I've had about Eastman including with author John Kalaki. There's this great story of when John Cage was doing something and Julius was in residence with the SCM Music Ensemble. In 1975, there was a June in Buffalo festival. I think it was the first one. Here again is Mary Jane Leach. John Cage's songbooks was programmed. The SCM Ensemble had performed that before and, and Cage loved the performance. And so he wanted, you know, he wanted to know if they would do it again. And one of the um, strictures of the piece was that they couldn't rehearse and they couldn't confer with each other about what they were doing. 
Well, Songbooks is this <clears throat> is this big theater piece, and it was in, in a large hall. I learned that Kyle Gann was in attendance for this performance of Cage's work. Songbooks is a collection of short pieces. Some involve music, instruments, and electronics. Others are theatrical instructions or suggestions. There were different performers all over the place, so there was no one center of attention until Julia started taking somebody's clothes off. Cage's instructions were, in a situation provided with maximum amplification, no feedback, perform a disciplined action with any interruptions, fulfilling in whole or in part an obligation to others. And so he gave a lecture on on sex. Julius has, um, I think, uh, a, a white man that I think he was dating at the time, or and then a black woman, and he invited them to come up on the stage. And undressed the young man on stage, tried to undress the, the woman, and she resisted, and he didn't do it. He started camping it up. The SEM musicians all started improvising and doing this whole kind of crescendo of stuff. And, uh, you know, the performance went on after that. Nothing nothing ground to a halt. <laughs> there were still other other performers going on who we eventually re- re- returned our attention to. The next day, Cage was pounding his fist on the podium, railing against it. And Cage was just furious. He did get angry. He pounded his fist on the piano. I think he resented Julius bringing it out and making a thing out of it. And and resented Julius uh, using one of his pieces to draw attention to himself. I mean, Julius was always trying to be provocative sexually. But I think in a way he was also pointing out that if you don't take charge of your material, you can, you know don't complain about the results that you get. Well, actually, he did exactly what you asked him to do in, in his own way. To me, that is the big lesson from from that. It's not that he was trying to rile up um, Cage. I think he was just he was pointing out musically the fallacy of just giving free hand to people. I got the impression by that point. Julius wanted to be doing his own music and seemed to to not want to be doing Cage's pieces anymore. Kyle's impression rings true. After that performance with the SEM Ensemble, Eastman really did focus on the composition and performance of his own material with some success. So why is it that so many of us know the name John Cage, but not the name Julius Eastman? Why does one composer get to be remembered and not another? You know, perhaps he was so overlooked in his day because of the systemic racism that has been in our classical music fields too. And mainstream music world didn't know what to do with him. Suddenly, I think the music world is trying to write the canon. The classical canon is a collection of pieces that are most often played and studied, sort of like the greatest hits of classical music. It's a curated list of quote-unquote important pieces, composers, and works. This curation started in the 19th century and the list heavily favors white European men. When John says write the canon, he's referring to write R-I-G-H-T, making room in this list of important works for diverse voices and composers. In the attempts to write the canon in in both senses of the word, we we must then acknowledge that the canon is indeed constructed. Here again is Richard Valetudo, the pianist and keyboardist for the new music group Wild Up. There's a number of performers who are taking his work and really 
really stretching it creatively and it's, it's really amazing to see. I don't know how much that's actually contributing to the canonization of Julius Eastman. Part of it for me at the beginning was, what if Eastman could join the canon? This is the artistic director and conductor of Wild Up, Christopher Roundtree. But immediately, the first question is, do you think he would want to be in the canon? Do you think that that's a goal? I think it's a really, really good question. You know, as a music professor, I need a canon just to, as a basis. The current canon is more full of holes than Swiss cheese. The canon needs to be shaken up continually and and should not be thought of as a as a kind of permanent thing as we often think of it there's a lot of music in the canon that i would love to get rid of a lot of people greatly overvalued a lot of other people unjustly forgotten what's important is that we hear the best music and the best music often doesn't make it into the canon or some of the best music does and for, for stupid contingent reasons yeah, the, the canon has it has its issues, and I, I think I, I kind of just worry what happens if if Eastman is brought into the canon, but only through this, you know, very small percentage of his work that is that happens to be a little closer to the works that the classical music establishment does. What Richard says here about who gets to be in the classical music canon brings to mind an article I read by musician Jace Clayton about the current resurgence of interest in Eastman's music, entitled Reverence is a Form of Forgetting. Clayton says, quote, First, we have to leave behind any idea of progress in canonizing Eastman. Alongside the positive enthusiasm about reconsidering Eastman lies a certain amount of performative wokeness. Eastman's face provides great optics to advertise an otherwise staid concert series upcoming season. Reviving an unjustly malaise, black gay talent who is no longer able to speak back to our many uses of him confers a kind of sideways ethical blessing on all involved. But Eastman didn't die for our historiographic sins. He died unsung. Who are we missing now? To take one of the works on, you have to spend many hours having discourse about what it means. But you can't just sit down and have it work. Um, because it's about discourse and it's about agency. So the only way to not disenfranchise this composer is to give a lot of time. And I'm I'm curious to see, like, in the attempts to write the canon in both senses uh, w- with regard to Eastman, maybe that will fail, but in the best possible sense, in that we think the goal and we think what should happen is this thing over here with, like, yay, we get to put his picture up next to all these other ones. And what will in in fact happen is maybe that shelf with all those photos on it will be completely torn down and replaced with a new something um, that holds all of these great, you know, great experiences and, and music in a different way. So let's tear down the shelf and wrap up this discussion on Julius Eastman, the human, and hear personal stories told by the people that knew him. Meredith Monk told me that after he was, you know, just living on the street, he would show up at odd times. And she said, well, I'll, I'll feed you. And she said, and then they would sit down after dinner and they would play four-handed piano. And one night sang the Henry Purcell songbook. Melissa Fenley is a choreographer who in 1986 was commissioned to do a piece at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And she commissioned Phil Glass to do a section and Julius Eastman to do a section of the piece. It was called geologic moments. 
Well, Julius at this time was homeless. And so Melissa would have to call his brother, who's a jazz musician who lived in Brooklyn, to find out where Julius was, to remind his brother to find him so he could uh, show up at rehearsal. Julius didn't have a piano to rehearse with, right? They would sneak him into the second theater so the stage crew didn't know about it. And he would play for hours. He would sit there and play on the piano for hours. He would sleep backstage. And so he she'd wake him up for the performance. And then once the performance started, he played piano and he sang. He was ferocious. He was unbelievable. He was brilliant, she said. This whole other side of him that was fully alive came on stage. He and I were hired to be vocalists for this theater piece. Here once again is Mary Jane Leach. I think it was like a 10 a.m. 10 rehearsal or something like that. And it was just him and me and the composer. He walks in wearing black leather and chains with a scotch in his hand. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, I thought it was like somewhat cool, but I mean, he just kind of left you in the dust. <laughs> I think he did want to uh, kind of put his own identity in people's faces and make the public deal with things that classical music audiences don't usually have to deal with. That's Kyle Gann. He was a music critic for The Village Voice back in the late 80s and 90s. I'm afraid he kind of gets the image, public image is sort of a wild man. And he wasn't. He was very gentle. He had this wonderful, deep voice. He was easy to talk to. Uh, I enjoyed his company. Mary Jane remembers when Eastman was evicted from his apartment in New York City. And she says even while living in the park, he found a way to take care of others. Everybody goes, oh, poor Julius, you know. But all these friends went to his rescue and they raised money so he could pay his back rent. And he turned around and gave it to somebody else and says, well, he needs it more than I need it. This selfless behavior was the hallmark of Eastman's last years. He went to the men's shelter on 3rd Street and you know, wash their feet and clip their toenails, you know, it's like, so that it has that sort of messianic kind of feel to it. Actions like this were evidence of Eastman's beliefs. He was a student of all religions and well-versed in many different philosophies. When Eastman walked away from his work, his scores, his belongings after being evicted, he also walked away from a quote-unquote normal life. He seemed to be rejecting the expectations of others and starting his own path. One of the things that has stuck with me was when I, I talked to his mother, his mother said he didn't even like to be touched as a baby. I mean, have you ever heard of a baby or infant who didn't want to be touched? To me, that just sets the whole course of his life, you know, which is he's the center of attention, but he's also unavail- you know, unavailable and in, in in a, untouchable in a way. And he was the master of his destiny. For years after his death, Eastman's music and humanity remained invisible, alongside too many marginalized, forgotten, or ignored voices in the classical world. But these days, Julius Eastman is getting his due. His name is celebrated, and his music is touching a new generation. I'm James Stewart. Thanks for listening. And remember to follow the timeline at vermontpublic.org slash timeline.